Um, I want to get your feedback on something which I think you would have a very interesting perspective on. The Grenfell Fire of 2017 in London was Britain's worst fire since the Blitz. What were your thoughts when you saw that fire happening on the news? What were you thinking? The thing that immediately comes into my mind is the families. It's the families. It's it's those that are then left with having spoke to the family member the day before and everything was absolutely fine. Hey, you're doing? Yeah, you're getting ready for this, you're getting ready for that. Yeah, great, I'll see you at the weekend or whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, to then suddenly it stopped. Everything that was is no longer. I'm Georgie Vesti and this is Dead Honest, a podcast where we talk honestly about death. This week it's the turn of Andy Holter. Andy started his career as a special constable in the police and so is no stranger to death and its traumatic aftermath. After a few years, Andy realised he had a gift for this type of work and rather than stepping back, he decided to step in even closer and become a funeral director. We talk about his favourite funerals, the deaths that affect him the most and why flying down the highway behind a coffin in a convoy of trikes is all in a day's work. When was the first time you saw a dead body? Actually, it was a road traffic collision. Um, a taxi was travelling um, out of Eastbourne. Another car was coming down the opposite direction. Uh, the vehicle had lost control and had a head-on collision with the taxi. Uh, on arriving there, I remember opening uh, the driver's side door and as I looked through into the vehicle, I could see the passenger. He hadn't survived. But the impact on me was quite interesting. It was quite surreal, I guess, because what had happened was it was almost like time had stopped. Time had absolutely stopped. And I vaguely remember what felt like hours of slowness with my, my colleague in the car with me. Tapped me on the shoulder and subsequently, Andy, Andy, Andy. And all of a sudden I, I sort of snapped out of it. it. That sat with me for quite a considerable time. Sadly, I also then had to look after the partner who was also in the car and then give the information that the person had passed away. But certainly that experience probably set me up then for the future on reflection because it gave me the ability to understand how important it is when sharing that kind of devastating, very upsetting information that nobody particularly wants to hear. But that first instant gave you a sense that you had a bit of a calling yeah I think so I think so um, cer- certainly in my heart and that, and that I think is the key thing anybody who's kind of in the profession of looking after others has a heart of care and a heart of wanting to look after somebody so is that how you got comfortable with death yeah probably to be fair probably was because after that <laughs> uh, it was like the first one happened and then, and then you know the, the next load followed so uh, I, I remember next one of looking after someone who passed away was actually where someone passed away in the vehicle um, again because of sudden death we attended myself and my colleague and the circumstances there again was um, different because it, it was the first time I'd gone into a mortuary because we had to take the person who passed away out of the vehicle they were in and then it, it was necessary for us at that time to do the dignified and respectful thing looking after the deceased prior to putting them into the cool area and that was the first experience of having that never being in a mortuary or a morgue is a very strange environment you're particularly aware that suddenly there were a few people that are laying in that environment and if you've never seen that kind of environment it's a little bit oh moment but I think that was certainly an eye-opening experience which again it didn't certainly didn't deter me from 
oh, this is shocking, because actually that's not as I saw it. It was a case of, ah, oh, this is where these loved ones are being looked after. And I think that mindset certainly helped me up for the future. Now, I know that not just as a funeral director, but you also have an additional role as a funeral director in the area that you're in. You are responsible for looking after the deaths that occur that come under the jurisdiction of the coroner, which means all sudden and unexpected deaths. I mean, that could be suicides, fatal accidents, presumably transport-related incidents as well. Tell me about that side of your work. Well, the, the police officer at scene would ordinarily ring uh, our number. It would come through to one of four funeral directors, of which I'm one of those four. Uh, we'd also be given details of the loved one who's passed away, uh, the address to where they are, and any circumstances that we need to be aware of, but particularly also for the purpose of me being able to support my colleagues because of the nature of what you rightfully said about road traffic collisions and suicide. Uh, and usually at that point I would say to them, right, when, when you've gone and you've done what you need to do and you've attended the mortuary, please give me a call afterwards so I can just check up on your welfare, make sure you're okay. If the circumstance is such that actually I deem they need a little bit more support than that, then then I will then physically go out with the two colleagues who will be attending the scene, looking after their well-being, their welfare. It also gives better support at the scene if it's required. When was the last time you did that? Um, I did that uh, earlier this year, actually. There was a... There was a circumstances um, in regards to our coastline where, uh, unfortunately, um, someone had taken their own life along with some others at the same time. Uh, a very delicate situation which occurred, very hard. A lot of people were emotionally sort of upset, quite rightfully. Um, I know the Coast Guard were, f- were particularly affected. Um, our men, it was uh, the, the two uh, colleagues who attended that on that particular occasion. It had been their first experience of collecting more than one person and it involved uh, younger people. It's interesting to me because you are dealing in your area uh, of, of England with a very high number of suicides. Yes, we are. Which is, which is tragic. And one of the things we have an issue about is talking about suicide because we're obviously concerned that if we talk about suicide, we might then be encouraging other people to take their lives. But you are at the end where you get to see the impact that this course of action has on the families. And I'd like you to talk to me about that. One of the things I've been very fortunate to do in the past, I was a part of the Beachhead Chaplaincy uh, that actually operates on Beachhead. Tell me about that first. So the Beachhead Chaplaincy is a group of volunteers um, that basically patrol, if you like, or walk up and down the cliff edge, identifying anyone that would be looking as if they're heading towards the cliff edge on their own. And we would talk to them. Most of us had had suicide intervention training, um, meant that, thank God if I can say that, I was lucky enough to pull people from the edge who then didn't proceed with going over the edge so then you got a better idea of talking to them what they were going through um, but having to understand that helps as a funeral director too because of course when you're going to your question about how is it for the family members after it creates all sorts of anxiety anger it's trying to fathom how why why didn't they talk why didn't they communicate with us why didn't they tell us how you're feeling we can never understand For the families left behind, it's about, again, as a funeral director, supporting them, holding their hand, and trying to just help them. Because ultimately, it's important for counselling after that, really. It's it's about the support network afterwards. It's the friends, it's the the professionals, it's, it's helping them try and understand why a decision was made that they may have never even had an inkling about. Are they the hardest deaths to support a family around? No. What are the hardest deaths to support? 
from my experience in my personal opinion and, and colleagues may say differently to this but for me it's child death child death is certainly the one that I find hardest as a film director that's really tough what is it about it that hits you so hard it's a new life a new life that there's so much ahead of that new life for a parent and as a, as a parent of a four and a half year old to even think of losing my own daughter is just really really difficult so to sit there and actually help families join that time is emotionally challenging um, I certainly um, find it very hard so when you think about the child deaths and you think about the work that you've done in the last 10 years, are there any cases that have hit you particularly hard? Um, yeah, a prob- probably a friend of mine. You will always, as a funeral director, end up with, a, quite rightfully, a connection between you and the family you're looking after. It's even harder when it's someone you know really well but it's harder when you know it's someone really well whose child it is. And for me, that that is incredibly challenging and, and very, very tough. Uh, and within the last six months, um, a good friend of mine and a very good friend of mine uh, lost their little girl. Um, very hard, very, very hard. Um, and they asked me in the end to... Um, they, they basically got a little white coffin which is, which is normal and customary for a baby funeral um, and they bought Frozen stickers Frozen being the Disney yeah. film for those who are uh, not initiated absolutely uh, and a wonderful film it is too but uh, the connection I guess that was then made was that my own daughter loves Frozen and then my best friend's daughter who's passed away loves Frozen and, and I got asked could I put these stickers onto the coffin because they were unable to do that so I then had to start doing that. Um, and I then took a personal responsibility uh, for looking after the little girl and dressing her and making sure she looked at absolutely at best um, because I was entrusted to do that from my, my friend. And I did that for them. But needless to say, I carry that because that's one of the biggest challenges to look after a little girl. So that would say that's my toughest moment. And when you have a day like that, when you've had to dress the child of a friend of yours, Mm. something which is so beyond the realms of what anyone could ever imagine Mm. having to ever have to do, what do you do to bring yourself back to who you are? Where do you take those feelings? I take them to prayer. (laughs) Um, I take them to prayer. I I, I know different people do different things, but for me, I I, I give it to God. I, I pray to God and say look I I need to pass this to you I need you to help me with this Uh, and it's about prayer for me that's that's how I deal with things how important is your family to supporting you do you try and keep this job away from them (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's interesting actually I've never been a good one about talking about uh, things outside of my world I think there's a confidentiality thing there I think there's about professionalism and so for me I have the release through prayer. I'm sure my colleagues certainly would speak to family and friends because that's what they do. Uh, I know others that will sit on a computer and just play games on a computer as a release of pressure and stress. People go and play golf or, you know, everyone's got their own different ways. 
of managing them. And when you talk about your team, I'm interested to know what are you looking at when you start seeing them begin to burn out? What are the symptoms you're beginning to look for? One of the ways that we suggest looking at is about temper and behaviour because actually people get snappy. Ask why they're getting snappy. Is it tired or is it stress? Or is it something that's upsetting them? Is it something that needs to be talked about? So we encourage people very much now to communicate with each other and, and we look at each other. We try and monitor and support each other. So um, many a time I'll sit in the office and I'll look at my colleagues and just, how are they doing today? Are they okay? Are they looking slightly worn out? Are they looking burnt out, as you would rightfully say? And then it's about trying to take some pressure off. So do you need some time off? Do you need some time out? Do you want me to do that little task for you while you have a little bit of a break? Do you want a cup of coffee? So there's lots of ways we can do it. Uh, And the interesting thing is nothing new. We've been doing this for years and years and years. The problem is we've got into a lifestyle which is really busy and we're so busy we forget. Um, And where we're so busy, we just don't take time to sometimes just go, stop, stop and calm. Let's de-stress and now let's start again when we're ready. Who gets overlooked in the grieving process? That's a very interesting question. I, I, I think probably the overlooked one will be the main mourner after the funeral has taken place. Because what tends to happen is the funeral will take place for a couple of weeks afterwards. Maybe everyone's still, how are you doing? Everything all right? Anything we can do for you? And then everyone goes back to their way of life. Busy, 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 busy. And the loved one is then left um, struggling. So much so, we've started creating what you call your not alone events. So what we're now doing is picking up aftercare. We're picking up and saying, well, actually, you might be a funeral director that will arrange your funeral, but actually we still care. And as caring people, we're going to invite you to come along and we'll just have tea and coffee. How are you doing? Yeah, just a chat. Because that chat might be the difference between the person sitting at home constantly all the time on their own to actually be inviting someone to come and share and just have a little bit of companionship. So actually your question, I think, actually may well be the main person who's lost that loved one. So what can we do better to support that person? I think we need to go back to basics. And the back to basics is friendship. And I think our way of life has got so busy that we just move on so much focusing around what we need to do. We forget those that we also need to do things for, which is just basic friendship. Tell me, as a funeral director, what is the most satisfying part of your job? Being able to hold the hand of the loved ones and support them at a time which is very difficult for them. And that's why, for us as funeral directors, it's imperative uh, that we're there to to say, it's okay, it's okay, we're going to hold your hand, we're going to guide you through, we're going to do what you need us to do. And there is, there is very little time I will ever say no to something. I want to be able to do what is important for the loved one who's passed away, but most importantly, to the one that is sitting with me who needs that help. Have you ever had an experience where you've had to say no? <laughs> um, uh, yes, uh, and it, a very difficult decision, really. Sometimes, sadly, a loved one might not have been seen for some weeks. Fortunately, this person had passed away, been indoors for quite a period of time. And I had to say to this family, unfortunately, my recommendation would be that perhaps you remember your loved one as you last remembered them and there was quite a bit of discussion around that because i don't think there was an understanding of well what would change why could we not everything should be fine so you've got to be really diplomatic but also very sensitive to saying actually there is a period that has passed and nature has done what it's done and our suggestion would be that you remember your loved one as you last saw them 
And whilst we probably would never stop anybody if they really, 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 really wanted to come in, we have got to be mindful of their emotions, their feelings and how they are going to feel after that visit. But the thinking is that if people are really properly informed that the value of seeing someone after they've died actually has a huge benefit to people's grief and their realisation and and their acceptance going forward perhaps. So it's a really tricky one. I can understand that. It is. And and one of of the ways to overcome that is there are suggestions you can come in, and and I certainly offer this as well. And I think actually with the circumstance we're talking about, I'd suggested, well, we could do a sealed coffin. You can come into a sealed coffin. You can come and have some time alone. You can leave us a letter which we'll place in. Those kind of things. You come up with other ways. Certainly one of the other things you can do is just leaving the hand out. You can hold the hand. So it's a very fine line, but it's about doing what's best for the family. The family know best. They are the ones that need to tell us. We should be listening to them and being compassionate to what they want. Well, I think also because families react within families, they react very differently. So what might be right for one family member is not for another. And I imagine there are times when you're dealing with families where those tensions can become pretty volatile <laughs> yeah 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 springs to mind what springs to mind <laughs> so so you say about volatile situations it's interesting that family members don't always necessarily unfortunately get on um we are all but individual we're all our own opinions uh and i remember sitting in one particular arrangement where we were talking about the decision of what coffin selection should be made for for the loved one and one family mem- member was i'm not having that that's not what i'm having that's where the other one was going, no, that's what I want. Uh, and there was this real discussion going on to the point I actually had to, and, and it's the first and only time I think it ever happened, I had to say, right, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to have a break, going to have a cup of coffee, and we're going to get some air, and then we're going to resume. Uh, and I had to actually physically stop the arrangement, <laughs> have some time out, calm <laughs> the environment, and then restart again. So they've never come to blows in, at, at your... Um, no, you've never had an occasion where not, somebody's come to blows? Not yet, thankfully. It, it does happen, though, I've heard. Uh, uh, yes, and, and so have I, but thankfully thankfully not for me. Uh, yes. Clearly your, your anger management skills are extremely good. <laughs> you've managed to avoid that. Yes, thankfully. <laughs> you spend a large amount of your job, um, from what I imagine, as a grief counsellor in many ways. Yeah. So you have a lot of experience to see how families grieve and what would you say are the things that are that help families in their grief I always say to my families when I'm sitting with them making the arrangements that my first thing I say to them before I do anything is before we do anything today and this might sound a little strange is I want you to tell me about Miss Moggins I want to know about Miss Moggins because I'm now going to be caring for Miss Moggins up to the day of the funeral and the care doesn't stop at the time of her passing the care continues with me and I want to know as much as I possibly can about her and I think by getting the family members to tell me that whilst it's, a, it's emotional and it's, it's really quite difficult it's good that they can hear the positives they're coming out with and nine times out of ten with all my families it's positive so tell me about the negatives because what are the one in ten that come to you with the <laughs> negatives yeah that's quite interesting usually get oh I was always so moody always this always that and I always end up saying to the families in in that circumstance I said okay so there were always areas of perhaps development but at least there are some real positives in there that you will always remember so it's about trying to turn that into a positive but are families ever are there occasionally families who are just genuinely happy to see the person dead 
I haven't had that. I know my colleague has, to which actually we only had a discussion about that last week, which I sat there slightly gobsmacked going, really? Uh, only because I'd never experienced it. But obviously it must happen. And what happened in his circumstance? What did he have to deal with? <laughs> Uh, we had a memorial service for work where we invite all our families uh, once a year to come to a memorial service at Christmas. It gives everyone a chance to come and, and just uh, have moments to share. And uh, this this lady, he'd looked after some five years earlier. He said, oh, could you hear? Well, actually, she said, I don't really want a beer because I didn't really like him, but I, I'm, I'm going to come anyway. <laughs> she was there for the booze. I think so. And he was like, oh, my word. Um, so anything happens. It's a unique profession what's your favorite type of funeral hmm <laughs> my favorite do you know my favorite type of funeral is absolutely categorically reflecting the full life of the person who's passed away and if that means like a friend of mine's dad the other day we were on a trike and there were a hundred trikes and i'm on the back of it in my jeans and my t-shirt and my leather jacket because that's what the family have asked me to be as a funeral director sitting on the back and we're going really fast down the road because that's what the family want. That's my favourite funeral. I'm interested to know, what's your least favourite funeral? Oh, my least favourite is little Miss Moggins. There's no family. There's no one left. She's on her own. And it's just me and the vicar. That's sad. How often does that happen? More common than you'd think, actually. Yeah, a lot more common than you think. But equally, whilst it's sad, I'm pleased to be able to say I'm there. I'm there for her. And so is the vicar or the person taking the service. So she's not alone or he's not alone. There is someone there. But that's a little sad. Yeah. Tell me, what has this job taught you about life? Never take it for granted. You just don't know what's going to happen next. So love everyone for as long as you can love them. Be happy as for as long as you can be happy. And help those you can help when the opportunity arises. That's my lessons out of it. How would you like to die? In my sleep. And what about your funeral? <laughs> my funeral? I would probably give one of those weird messages in my funeral, which is, yes, I've passed. Yes, I've gone. And I know I've gone to a better place. But for you left behind, please smile and please carry on. That's probably what I would be thinking. One of those sort of spooky hologrammy type of things. I worry, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to thank Andy for being so honest about his work. I hope you can hear his compassion. It's not just some marketing gimmick, but genuinely part of his DNA. And it's a credit to CPJ Field, the family company Andy works for, that they've encouraged him to create one of the first wellbeing programs for his colleagues in this profession. You can find a link to CPJ Field on our website, deadhonest.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love to hear from you. Perhaps you have a suggestion for a future episode or maybe want to share your own experience. Whatever it is, I'd be happy to hear from you. You can find my contact details on deadhonest.com. So until next time, 